We have a big passage this evening, Romans 9, 6 through 24. Romans 9, 6 through 24. I'll read it in its entirety before uh, we pray for our time here together in God's Word. So I invite you to open up your Bibles if you can. Romans chapter 9. Starting in verse 6, going through 24. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that, or will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, And another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Allow me to pray for us. As we get into God's word. God, we are humbled by your word. We are humbled as we learn more about you. Lord, you are indeed greater than we are. God, we ask that as we approach your word this evening, that you would show us and reveal to us your truth. God, that we would see how great and mighty and powerful and awesome you are. Lord, that we would be worshipful, that we would worship you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified. Speak to us tonight, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I like to watch movies. I don't know that I'd say I'm a movie buff, as some people would consider themselves, but I like movies. And probably my favorite director of all time 
is Christopher Nolan. Yeah, oh, I think you got a fan. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. Uh, most of you guys probably like, who? Okay, it doesn't matter. Um, but he has built a uh, – he's built credit with me, uh, a, a reputation where uh, I, if I know he's coming out with a movie, which he doesn't come out with a lot, then I know it's going to be good. I don't even care what it's about. I don't, all I care about is the release date because that's when I'm going to go to the movies and watch it, and I, I know I'm going to enjoy it. And a few years ago, he – actually, I think it was the last movie he released. Uh, he released a movie called Tenet. And in my opinion, it was a good movie. Uh, I liked it. It's kind of like an espionage thriller kind of movie. But you have to understand something about Christopher Nolan movies. They are always so complicated and and complex and just like there's so much going on that there's twists and turns and and there's there's so much mystery and question. Like afterwards, you're talking about, oh, what did this mean and what did this happen? And and Tenet was like the the most out of all of them. Uh, it, It was so complex I, I, I walked out of the theaters, and I really did not fully understand what I just watched. Uh, in fact, even the actors that acted in it, afterwards they were like, I don't even really know what happened. Like, like the actors who were in the movie, after the movie was released, they still – every single one, they're like, yeah, I, don't, I didn't fully get it. And as I watched it, I think – and maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. I think I understood probably 70% of it. Maybe 60%. I don't know. But but that 70% was was enough for me to really enjoy the movie. I didn't have to understand all of it to appreciate and, and, and to enjoy it. Uh, I, I, I may never fully understand the movie. I probably won't. Uh, I don't even know if Christopher Nolan understands his own movie. Uh, <laughs> but I could still enjoy it even though I, I, I didn't quite understand all of it. And In a much bigger and grander scale than that, this passage humbles me, and I come to this passage, and I will preach this passage tonight knowing that there is still great mystery to which I do not fully understand. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to approach passages in that way. For God is much greater than us, right? Even we sang tonight, behold our God. His ways are much deeper than our minds can understand on this side of eternity. So we must must approach this text, I think, with great humility and acknowledge our great inadequacy to completely and fully understand the greatness of our God. While we will likely leave here tonight with questions left unanswered, that's kind of the amazing thing about Scripture is that the more you learn, the more questions you have. My hope is that by God's grace, we will have a better understanding of the character of God and that have a better understanding of the way in which God redeems his people. My hope is that we will be able to rejoice and praise God for the things in which he does reveal to us, even in this passage. So as we enter this section we looked at last week of Romans chapter 9 through 11, those few chapters, the first question Paul seeks to address here as we start verse 6 is since not all of Israel, God's chosen people, since they're not all saved as we looked at last week, does that mean that God has failed in his plan of salvation? 
The fact that not all of Israel, not all of God's chosen people, that, that nation, since they, they're not all saved, did God fail in his plan of salvation? And the answer is no. God has not failed in his plan of salvation. And that's where Paul starts to explain this. Paul explains in great detail God's sovereign plan of salvation. That in his great and perfect and sovereign plan of salvation, Paul outlines three things. We see God's election, we see God's mercy, and we see God's glory all displayed in salvation. That's what we're going to look at tonight in verses 6 through 24. His election, his mercy, and his glory, all part of his sovereign plan of salvation. All right, so first, we see God's election, verses 6 through 13. God's election. We'll look at two subpoints for each of these three main points. The first main point being God's election. And your first subpoint for this is that God elects his children based on his own will. That's God's own will. God elects his children based on his own will. As we looked at last week, it's not merely being a part of Israel that saves you. It's not being a, a, a descendant of Abraham that saves you. It is only by God's electing choice that one is saved. Paul even says in verse 6, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He reiterates the point. He reiterates that, that point just because that, that, that you have these great advantages, just because you have these blessings. Remember, we looked at the great advantages that Israel had last week. Just because you have these of being part of Israel or just because you're in the line of Abraham, it does not save you. Salvation is not based on your heritage. Salvation is not based on your family or your works, or anything else other than Jesus Christ. Sadly, there are many who claim to have salvation, who claim to be a Christian, but it's not based on Jesus. It's based on something or someone else. It's based on the fact that they grew up in a Christian family. It's based on the fact that they have that they go to church regularly. It's based on the fact that they listen to Caleb on the radio. It's, it's based on whatever these things are. And so then they claim to be a Christian. But just claiming to be a Christian does not make you a Christian. You are not a child of God by being a child of Abraham or, or a child of Christian parents or anything else. You are a child of God if God has elected you to be his child. And that's really what this first section is about, 6 through 13. That God elects, that he chooses those whom he saves. And here in this section, we see God's election of his people. And so Paul explains this by giving the example of the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're going to look at all three of those as he outlines it, verses 6 through 13. First is that of Abraham. Now, the election of Abraham is obvious, right, and well known. We talked about it earlier in Romans, that God chose to elect Abraham or Abram and not anyone else. And did God choose Abraham because he was good? No, not at all. Abraham, what? He came from a pagan family. He, he had no knowledge of the one true God. He was a worshiper of idols. Abraham did not seek God, but God sought Abraham. And in the same way, when God elects his people, when, when he chooses whom he will save, 
He doesn't hold tryouts like you're trying out on, on, on a sports team. God doesn't look to see, well, who's the smartest? Who's, who's the nicest? Who's going to do the greatest things for me? I'm going to choose that person. You cannot woo God into choosing you. Like, ooh, God, pick me, pick me. God chose Abraham because he chose Abraham. And you too, if you are a Christian, he chose you because he chose you. And outside of that, we don't know why. Not only does he talk about Abraham, but then he talks about Isaac. Look what verse 9 says. It says, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. It's very important because if you remember, Isaac was not Abraham's first son. Who was Abraham's first son? Ishmael. Ishmael was. Thirteen years before Isaac was born, Abraham had a son through Hagar, Sarah's servant, named Ishmael. However, Ishmael was not chosen by God. Isaac was. Ishmael was a physical descendant of Abraham, but he was not a child of the promise as Isaac was. God had elected Isaac and had decided to pass over Ishmael. It had nothing to do with human choice or human power. It had everything to do with God's choice and God's power. Ishmael was conceived through man's natural, physical powers. Abraham decided he's going to put things into his own hands and conceive with Hagar instead of waiting and trusting in the promise with Sarah. Ishmael was conceived through Abraham's choice and his own physical powers, whereas Isaac was conceived through God's supernatural powers. Do you see the difference? And they were supernatural. Do you remember? Both Sarah and Abraham were well past childbearing years. But God made a miracle and chose Isaac to carry on the promise. And this is the case for every believer. We are not saved through natural, physical powers. We do not put salvation into our own hands and choose who's saved or who's not. We are only saved through God's supernatural powers. We must be conceived into new birth, which only happens by God's electing choice and his supernatural work in our lives. See, there is no chance for Sarah to conceive unless God intervened, and he did. And the same is true for every Christian. There was no chance for you to be saved, Christian, until God intervened. And by his electing choice, he chose to save you. And then he goes on to talk about Jacob. And you see, because some may question the first two examples. First, they might say, well, of course Abraham was chosen because you have to start somewhere. And so, yeah, he chose Abraham. Then everyone who came from Abraham, they're good. So then Paul brings up Isaac and Ishmael. But still, some might question and say, yeah, but Ishmael doesn't count because he wasn't a, 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 a pure-blooded Jew. He was born of Hagar, not Sarah. And so that's why he wasn't chosen. That's why only Isaac was because he's still coming from the line of Abraham. And so now Paul gives the example of Jacob and Esau. Both born of the same Jewish parents. Both born at the same time. Actually, Esau was a little bit older, right? Because they're twins. But he's just barely older as Jacob's holding on his heel. 
In fact, the reality of Esau being older and yet Jacob receiving the blessing, that goes against all normal standards of who should have been the chosen one. And not only that, but God chose Jacob, as it says here, not because of any good works that he did, but solely because God in his great sovereignty decided to choose him. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born, talking about Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, right? They're not even born. They couldn't do good. They couldn't do bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him. That's God who calls. See, before they were even born, God chose Jacob, not Esau. It had nothing to do with their works or how they lived their life. But God simply chose Jacob and not Esau. And so is the case for every believer. That you were chosen by God before time began. It was not a result of any works of your own. If you are a Christian, it's solely because God chose you to be a Christian. You bring nothing to the table that entices God. Just as Jacob brought nothing to the table. You were saved. Because before you were even born, you were chosen. Before the foundations of the world, God chose you to be saved. See, God elects his people according to his own will. Not only that, but our second point that we see is that God's election is an act of God's grace. God's election is an act of God's grace. So let's understand, I mean, what what does God's election mean exactly? It means that God elects some people to be saved and some he does not elect to be saved. Right? So God is electing, I am choosing to save you and I'm choosing not to save you. And so naturally, there will be those who say, but that's not fair. That's not fair. It's wrong for God to choose one and not another. You might think, poor Esau. He he did nothing wrong. In fact, Jacob is the deceiver here. How could Jacob be chosen and not Esau? That's not fair. It's not fair for Esau. Let's just take a step back. Let's take a step back and realize that salvation by election is the only thing that is fair. If it were not for God electing us to salvation, none of us would be saved. It is the only chance we have to be saved. It is election or nothing. Because if it were left up to us, not left left up to God, but if it were left up to us and not God's elective work, then we would never choose God. We wouldn't choose him. Of course, then the question of free will comes up, right? Because we're saying, well, God's the one who chooses you. You're not the one who chooses God. So then we say, well, then what, what are you saying? That we don't have free will? That we're just robots? That we just whatever God just tells us and he chooses and we don't choose him? We, we have no say in it, no free will. God just makes us robots. I'm not saying that at all. I do think we have free will. But in our free will... We will always choose sin, not God. 
The only hope we have is for God to change our will to align it to his. I've used this analogy before, but I think it's, it's a helpful one. Now imagine if you had a tiger in a cage and you starved him for weeks and he's a hungry tiger. And then finally, you open up the cage and you have two plates out there. One of a fresh garden salad and one of a big juicy piece of steak. Which one is the tiger going to choose? Steak. Steak. That's right. The big juicy steak. Why? Because it's in his nature to choose the steak. That tiger will always choose the steak. Did he have a choice? Yes. He chose the steak. But he's always going to do so because it's in his nature not to eat salad, but to eat the steak. And in the same way, we will always choose sin and rebellion towards God because it is in our nature to do so. But when God elects his people, he changes their nature and he gives them a new nature to receive his call and choose faith and repentance. Do we choose? Do we put our faith in God? Do we repent of our sins? Yes, because God has changed our nature. And if he did not elect us, he did not choose us and he did not change our nature in our free will, we will always choose sin. We will always choose rebellion. God, in his great sovereignty and grace, elects his people. And as a result of God's election, God sends his Holy Spirit to awaken our souls, to open our eyes to see, to take out our heart of stone, and give us a heart of flesh. Election says this. Election says everyone starts at the same point. Everyone's on the same level. We are all deserving of hell. There's no difference. But election is God's sovereign and gracious choice to save some and to pass by others. That is God's election. And it's all by his grace. Because we are all equal at the cross. Guilty. Every single one of us. But God's elective hand says, I will save you. I will save you. You didn't deserve to be chosen. It's all by his grace. If you're a Christian, that God chose to save you. Not because you brought anything to the table, but because by his grace, he chose you. Thanks be to God for his grace. Thanks be to God for his election. For without it, we would have no hope to turn to him. We would have no hope for salvation. So we see God's election in verses 6 through 13. Our next section, and we see God's mercy, verses 14 through 18, God's mercy. And your first point for this one is that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. His name is mercy. The natural question to God's complete election, as we just described it, that's saying God's going to choose some and he's going to pass over others. The natural question of God's election and the question that Paul's anticipating is, is God unjust? Like, isn't that unjust of God? I mean, even look at verse 14. He says, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means, he says. It's such a strong way. It says, by no means. Or some translations, may it never be. Or as we would say, no, 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 a thousand times no. In fact, if the thought, if the thought that God is an unjust God is creeping into your mind right now, then throw it out immediately. We do not dare think of God in that way. The very idea that God can be unjust or, or unrighteous or anything but good and perfect is blasphemous. Do not let that be in your mind. Paul answers this question or, or this accusation of God's injustice by again quoting the Old Testament. He's going to quote the Old Testament all throughout these next few chapters. This time he's exploring the life of Moses and Pharaoh. He rebuttals the claim of God's injustice by talking about God's mercy and compassion. Now, the very question, if there is injustice in God because, because he, he, he chooses to save some and chooses not to save others, that question is really backwards. It's, it's, it's twisted. It's, it's a self-centered mindset of salvation. Every single person is sinful and is deserving of God's wrath. You understand? There is not a single person on earth that would be treated unjustly if God were to condemn them to hell forever. None. We say it's not fair that God chooses some and not others. That's not fair. It's not fair that God chose Jacob and not Esau. It's not fair that God would choose me and, and, and not someone in this distant tribe in Africa who's never heard the gospel. That's just not fair. You want to talk about fair? Fair is that God chooses no one. Fair is that we all receive the condemnation of eternal wrath. That none are saved. That is fair. That is justice. If God were to exercise only his justice, just his justice, then no one would be saved. Therefore, it is far from unjust that God would elect only some and not others. God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he quotes that here in verse 15. God is a merciful God, and God is a compassionate God. And he does show mercy, and he does show compassion to those whom he has chosen. For God to show mercy, it means that, that he will withhold the wrath that he deserves. Right? We know this, that mercy is withholding. It's us not getting something that we deserve. And so he withholds the wrath that we deserve. What's the key phrase? That you deserve. We all deserve his wrath. We do not deserve his mercy. But God, out of his great loving kindness and grace, has decided to show mercy and compassion to his people. The wrath in which you deserve, he poured on his son at the cross. Your sin was not overlooked. But Christ bore your guilt and shame on the cross. And as a result... You receive mercy. And then Paul brings up Pharaoh. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, Pharaoh assumed that he had risen to power on his own strength, that he ruled according to his own will, that he was the absolute authority. I mean, he's Pharaoh. But it says here in Romans, and it says, as it says in Exodus, God is the one who rose up Pharaoh for a specific purpose of his own divine will. Not Pharaoh's will, but God's. What was that purpose? Why did God raise up Pharaoh? For God to show his power and that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. See, Pharaoh thought he raised his own self up for his own purposes. He had no clue that it was God who was working all of it out from the beginning for his own purpose. Here Pharaoh thinks he's a big dog, but he's God's dog. And God said, I will raise you up so I can show my power so that my name would be proclaimed. Now notice if you think about it, there's really not much of a difference between Moses and Pharaoh. With the exception that one was a Jew and the other was a Gentile. But other than that, they're both sinners. They're both murderers. They both witnessed God's miracles. The Ten Commandments, they both saw that. They both witnessed it. They both lived through it. And yet Moses was saved. And Pharaoh wasn't. And yet Moses received God's mercy and compassion. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This had nothing to do with who they were as people. It had nothing to do with their actions or their works or what they witnessed or didn't witness. This had everything to do with the sovereign will of God. It is within his will that he shows mercy and compassion to some and that he hardens others. Verse 18. See, for God to pass over someone in mercy, for God to allow man to continue in their sinful ways, is for God to show reprobation towards them. Or in this case, for God to harden them. Much like we looked at in Romans 1, if you were here in Romans chapter 1, that God removed his hand of grace. Remember, God removes his hands of grace and he just allows them to live in their natural sinful flesh. In the same way, God will show mercy and compassion to his elect children. Or he will harden them. As in, he will pass them by and allow them to continue in their sinful rebellion. It is according to his will. He shows mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whom he wills. But still within God's mercy, our next point is that God is the giver of salvation. God is the giver of salvation. I want us to focus a little bit before we move on to our next main point on verse 16. Listen to what he says in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Look at what it says. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on who? On God. It is not our choice to initiate our pursuit of God. But it is God who initiates his pursuit of us. It is God's will, not ours. It is God who elects. It is God who makes the first move. He calls us to himself. He pursues us. It begins by God's sovereign and gracious will. He is the giver of salvation. 
Salvation is a gift from God, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2. And he gives it as he wills. Now you may be asking, if God is the giver of salvation, shouldn't God give salvation to everyone? Right? Like there's something in us that wants to say that. There's something in us that wants to say, well, shouldn't he just give salvation to everyone then? Like maybe you agree we all deserve hell. Right? Yeah, I get it. We all deserve hell. And maybe you agree that, 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 that we're only saved by his mercy. I get it. We need his mercy. And maybe you agree salvation must be given by God. You get that. It comes from him. But, but you ask and you say, but shouldn't God show mercy and give salvation to everyone? Why would he hold it back for some? Shouldn't he give salvation to everyone? If you are asking that question, I graciously and gently say to you, you have not grasped what we're talking about. You're not getting what I'm saying. The question that I just posed was, shouldn't God show mercy and give salvation to everyone? The key word there is shouldn't. Shouldn't God show mercy? Shouldn't means that he ought to. Shouldn't mean that that he must, that that it's necessary. It implies obligation. And we're talking about should. The only should in the equation is justice. It's no longer mercy. God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. The question is not, shouldn't God show mercy? No, he shouldn't. He's not obligated to do so. But indeed, God is rich in mercy. He is. Not because he ought to, but because he is. The real mystery is not, why doesn't God show mercy and salvation to everyone? That's not the mystery. The real mystery is that God has shown mercy to me. The real mystery is that God has shown mercy to you if you're in Christ. To anyone. That's the mystery. Why? Why would he show mercy? The mercy of God is undeserved. It's, it's, it's unrequired. And yet he has done so. You see, God gives salvation. And he gives it not because he ought to. And not because we deserve it. He gives it because he is merciful. Praise God for that. Lastly, our last section, I should say, is we see God's glory. Verses 19 through 24. We see God's glory. And our first point in this last section is that God's ways are greater than our ways. God's ways are greater than our ways. Paul anticipates another question, and rightfully so. Look at verse 19. He says, he he knows what we're going to think. He says, you will say to me then... Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's a good question. The question is, if God has mercy on whom he wills, and if he hardens whom he hardens, then how can human beings be held responsible? Like how, how can we be blamed when it's all part of God's sovereign will? Like we, we can't change the will of God. And so if it's God's will that some have mercy and, and some are hardened, then I... I is it fair? Like, how, how can God hold me responsible? 
And Paul immediately responds back by saying, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Like, let's just stop and think about this for a second. Are we really trying to question God Almighty? In our sinful rebellion, are we trying to say to God, God, how can you hold me responsible for my actions? Like, what are we doing? Do you understand how blasphemous it is to deny or even question God's right to hold us accountable for our own sins? Dare we judge God with our finite, sin-tainted, biased little minds? Who are we to tell God what is right or wrong? Who are we to tell God what is just or unjust? And Paul helps us by giving us an example of the potter and clay. Verses 20 and 21 says, Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Right? It's like that. For us today, it'd be like that if we, if we played with Play-Doh. We have our little Play-Doh set or whatever, right? And so we're, we're making, we make a little town, we make a little people, little Play-Doh figurines or something. And the little figurines are like, why did you make me like this? And we're like, what the heck are you talking about? At first I thought that'd be freaky. And so we would just be like, smash, I'm starting over. And you make another one, they're like, well, I don't want to be this way. Why? And you're like, what are you talking about? You're Play-Doh. I'm a human being. Like, what? This is weird. It would be weird. It would be freaky. But how much, like, how ridiculous and inappropriate would that be for Mr. Plato? (laughs) And how much more of a difference, like, really, is there a difference between us and Plato and us and God? And you're like, there's a big difference between us and Plato. There is. I admit that. There's a big difference between us and Plato. Yes, but there's an infinitely bigger distance between us and God and us and Plato. We are much more like Plato than God is like us. And as ridiculous as it would be for Plato to talk to us like that, it is even more ridiculous for us to talk to God like that. We are just men and women who are setting ourselves against a holy and infinite God. It is preposterous for for just small, ignorant, sinful creatures to tell God what is right or wrong. Not only do we question God, but we also can become arrogant in thinking that we can fully comprehend the ways of God. As if we can fully understand the infinite mind of God. We are not equal. To the God who has made us. There are some things in which God does reveal to us. Yes, through his holy scriptures. But there are many things in which he does not. And it's okay to be humbled with the fact that we cannot fully grasp the depths of God's sovereignty in salvation. Believe it or not, his ways are greater than ours. Do not let the, the, the complexity and, and the depth of God's truth become a stumbling block for trusting and worshiping him. Do not let your inability to fully understand God's majesty lead you to a false conclusion of who God is, such as, well, then God's unjust. 
Don't let that happen. In your human mind, you may come to that conclusion. But that's because you don't have the mind of God. We must trust that we are finite and God is infinite. We must trust what we know is true about God. Such as that he is always just. Too often I think, especially when we approach a passage like this, maybe Christians try to apologize for God. Or, or, or try to explain away the, the clear biblical truth that God is God. And that by definition, he does all things and can only do all things justly and rightly. God needs no justification for anything he does. He is God, period. He does not need to explain himself. He does not need to justify himself, including calling some to salvation and not calling others. He does not owe us an explanation. Be careful, O oh man, of trying to claim Godship for yourself. God is God. He is the potter. You are the clay. For the things he has revealed to us, we worship and we praise him. For the things that he hasn't revealed to us, we trust him. We are humbled and we worship him and we praise him. Lastly, what we see is that God's glory will be revealed. Lastly, we see that God's glory will be revealed. While there is a a great mystery and a great complexity as to why and how God would allow some to be vessels of wrath and some to be vessels of mercy, I think Paul does give us one answer to that question. Well, why? Why would God allow this? Why would he have some vessels of wrath, some of mercy? And I don't think we'll understand it fully right now. But I think he does give us one answer. And in short, the answer is this, that it brings glory to God. And in that, we should rejoice. Because that's what we want, is the glory of God. Look at verses 22 and 24. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The ultimate purpose of salvation is to bring glory to God. And in the whole picture of salvation, in which he lists here in these couple verses, we see God's power, we see God's patience, we see God's mercy, and we see God's wrath. And all of that points us to his glory. That is the point of all things, including your salvation, is his glory. Do we benefit in salvation? Yes, but that's not the ultimate purpose of salvation. The ultimate purpose of salvation is the glory of God. I think one of the most difficult aspects of this passage that we have tonight, at least for me, maybe for you, is recognizing that unbelievers are vessels of God's wrath. The unbelievers, they are vessels of God's wrath. And this should bring us great sorrow for the unbeliever to know that they are a vessel of God's wrath. But we must understand that God... God does not make 
men sinful. It's not that he makes men sinful. He leaves them in their sin. He withholds his mercy from them. And they continue in their rebellion and unrepentance of sin. You see, and in that they are vessels of wrath. Wrath in which they have earned and stored up for themselves. Do you see the difference? In fact, it's hard to see in the English translation, but I think that the, the, the Greek helps us understand it more. The Greek word for prepared in 22b, when it talks about the vessel of wrath, he says, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The word for prepared is the passive voice in which it's saying that God is not doing the preparing. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They are prepared for wrath by their own rejection. Whereas on the contrary, Paul speaks of the vessels of mercy in verse 23. He says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, when Paul speaks of the vessels of mercy, the word for prepares in the active voice in which Paul says he prepared. See the difference? It is God who has rescued the unbeliever from his own wrath. It is God's work of salvation, and it is God who receives all the glory. God is active. While man has prepared for themselves an eternal grave of destruction and wrath, God has prepared for the Christian mercy and eternal life. The reason someone believes the gospel and becomes saved is because God intervened in their life. And has brought them to saving faith. He has prepared for them to be vessels of mercy. Those who are not saved. Those who aren't Christians. Those who are not saved are, are, are not in that position because God made them disbelieve. And he cast a spell on them and said, don't believe in me. But rather because they were left to themselves. They were passed over. And in themselves, what do they do? They disbelieve. God withholds his mercy, and as a result, they rebel by their own free will. The fact that there are vessels of mercy and that there are vessels of wrath ought to bring us to the glory and the praise of God. See, in, in, in our finite minds, the, the, the best way that I can understand, maybe even just a... a a slice of this profound mystery is that, that in seeing the vessels of wrath, in knowing that there are vessels of wrath, I'm overwhelmed with the fact that God has made me a vessel of mercy. I, I, I don't know in its fullness how and why God has made vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. But this I know, that in seeing the fact that I should be a vessel of wrath, but instead God has made me a vessel of mercy... It brings me to glorify and praise God. If we were all vessels of mercy and there were no vessels of wrath, what would I be thankful for? But knowing that I should still be there and knowing that I would still be there if it were not for God's grace in electing me, if it were not for his mercy upon me, it gives me great thankfulness and praise. While there is great mystery in God's sovereign plan of salvation, this I do know, that it brings God the most glory. And how and why, I, I don't know. But I know that it does. 
And that's what I care about more than anything else. Is that God receive the glory that he is due. That God be most glorified. And I know and trust that in his sovereign plan of salvation, he is receiving the glory. As we close tonight, I know that there can be a lot in this passage that can be difficult to understand. I know there can be a lot in this passage that that maybe is even difficult to accept. But do not get caught up in what you do not know. Get caught up in what you do know. God is a sovereign God. He is perfect. His ways are perfect. His ways are greater than ours. He is just. He is merciful. He is God. And we must believe and accept what scripture says. As one pastor put it, I love how he said it. He said, we must accept in our hearts what we cannot explain in our minds. Let us trust the word of God. Of what he has revealed to us. Now, if you are not a Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian. Be very careful with how you handle these truths. Okay, I want to be clear. Be very careful, non-Christian, on how you handle this. Do not distort the message of God's truth. And think to yourself, well, if God will save me, then he'll save me. I'll just wait. I'll just wait until he does something. If, if, if mercy is God's prerogative, if, if it must come from God, if I must be God's elect, then there's nothing I can do to be saved. I can't ask for mercy. I have to wait and see if he's going to give it to me. That would be to distort, to twist, to misunderstand, and to misapply his word. Do not do that. Do you know whom it, whom it is that God has set his mercy upon? Do you know who it is that God has set his mercy upon? Those who have cried out to him for mercy. Do you know who it is that are his elect? Those who have turned to him in faith and repentance. You want to know if you're part of his elect? You want to know. I want to know. Am I part of his elect? You want to know if God has chosen you? Non-Christian, you want to know? Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And you will know that you are his elect. It's been said here before. Take the first step towards God. Take the first step towards God. And God will take the step, second step towards you. And after you get to the third step, you'll realize he made the first step all along. It was him. Don't wait until you have a, a, a clear sign that, that, that you should go to God in faith and repentance. God, I'm waiting for the clear sign. This is the clear sign. His word. Move towards him. Move towards God and you will realize that you've been moved because the spirit has awakened your soul to move towards him. So go to him, non-Christian, in faith and repentance. Now, Christian, I ask you. Christian, what is this passage? What do these truths create in you? What does this stir in your heart? Anger towards God? That he hasn't revealed more to you? That, that he might not save those whom you love? That it doesn't seem fair? And so you're angry towards God? Does it create pride in yourself? That he chose you over others? The only thing that it should create in you is an immense joy and humility and thankfulness to God. 
This doctrine does, does not leave room for pride. This doctrine breaks down all walls of pride and leaves you with nothing but overflowing thankfulness to God that he would choose you and save you. You understand what this is saying? He chose you. Not because of you, but because of him. I've shared with you guys before my older brother, who me and him are very close, he's not a Christian. And I don't know why. I mean, I know why. But I don't get it. We, we, we did everything the same. We grew up in the same household. We, we sat under the same catechisms. We went to the same Sunday school. We sat next to each other on Sunday morning hearing the same gospel being preached week in, week out. Everything the same. No differences. In fact, he's smarter than me and he knows the Bible better than me. But I'm saved. And he's not. And I wrestle with that with God. I say, God, why haven't you saved him? Why did you choose me and not him? Don't choose me. Choose him. I, I, I did nothing. I did nothing to make myself better than him. Nothing for God to say, all right, Luke, I'm going to choose you and not your brother. But he chose me. And I don't know why. And he hasn't chosen him. And I don't know why. But what does that create in me? Thank God that you chose me. Thank you, God, that you've shown mercy to me. That you have elected me. That I belong to you. And I know I do. And I know it can only be by your grace. Because if it were not for his grace, I would still be lost like my brother. I don't deserve it. I deserve hell. And yet he's given me life. Christian, do you know the grace of God? Do you understand that? The more you understand that salvation has nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with God, the more you realize how undeserving you are of his love and how deserving God is of your glory and praise. So do not get caught up in what you don't know. Get caught up in what you do know. And that is that God is good. And that he deserves all glory and praise. So give him thanks and give him praise and live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your mercy. God, thank you for your election. And thank you, God, for your glory. God, we have nothing to offer but our sin. But thanks be to God for your grace and for Christ and for his righteousness and for his death on the cross and for his resurrection and victory over sin and death. God, we need you. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, I pray we would be overwhelmed by your grace. Lord, we would realize how undeserving we are, that we would realize, God, we should be vessels of wrath. But for some reason, out of your great grace and mercy, God, you have saved us. Lord, for those in here who do not know you, I pray you would save them. 
God, that they would draw near to you in faith and repentance. Save them, God, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.